At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Tyler. See you soon. And hi, everybody. This is The Exchange, and the NASDAQ and the S&P are at record highs again today. Will we ever see a pullback again? We'll talk to a guest who says we're historically overdue for one, and he'll explain some names he thinks could outperform broader markets if we head lower. Also, electric vehicles are here to stay, but is the EV trade toast? Why one analyst is betting on Ford as the next big winner. And shares of BlackBerry have nearly doubled so far this year as the company gets wrapped up in meme mania. But there is a real business transformation story here, so we'll ask, real or Reddit, BlackBerry edition. But let's start with these record highs for stocks. Bob Bassani here with more for us. Bob? And we are sitting at the lows for the day right now. Those cyclical stocks, the value stocks, not helping us at all today. So you see energy stocks, material stocks, industrial stocks weaker. So you have Chevron down in the Dow, Exxon down, Goldman Sachs down, American Express down. Tech is helping. So you got Intel up and Apple up. But we need a little bit more from those cyclical stocks that have been underperforming all throughout the month. And that's going to be the second half of the year. It'll still be value versus growth. That'll be the big debate. Remember, value tends to be cyclical stocks. And the problem here is we're sort of past that early cycle stage where cyclicals tend to do really well. We're in a mid-cycle stage, and that's why you're seeing these uh, these big tech names that have been doing much better in June versus earlier in the year. We'll see if that continues, but as for the second half of the year, the global growth story is going to continue improving, and we've seen some relaxation on inflation. So far, the Fed is getting its way. We'll see if that changes. The main paradigm for stocks still remains peak everything. That argues for a somewhat sideways market. Why? Because we're pretty expensive, folks. The P.E. ratio on 2022 earnings is 20 times. That's high historically. That's about 10 to 12 percent earnings growth. And that's a lot, folks. The average earnings growth in the S&P is about 6 percent a year. So it's going to be great for 2022, but it's expensive. What we need to keep an eye on is make sure that we don't have any problems with the two big things that can drop the multiple. One would be the Fed is wrong on inflation and they have to raise rates earlier. That would drop the multiple for sure. And maybe we get a sharper drop in growth than anticipated. And I mean, earnings growth, that would hurt. But so far, folks, it's not happening. These early companies that have been reporting so far in the last couple weeks, I'm talking about Nike, Adobe, Kroger, Lennar, Oracle, they've been outstanding. And Kelly, the only outlier so far has been FedEx. And even FedEx was just in line. Everybody thought they'd do a lot better than just in line. That was the sole disappointment. Other than that, we are off to a fantastic start for second quarter earnings. Kelly, back to you. That's an interesting place to pick up our next discussion. Bob, thank you so much, Bob Bassani. My next guest says the third quarter has a reputation for producing the weakest returns of the year, and 2021 could fall into that same pattern. He's got 10 stocks you can buy now that should hold up in this overdue downturn. Joining me now is Sam Stovall. He's the chief investment strategist at CFRA. Sam, it's great to have you. We like to begin with the historical look because a lot of people have said we're overdue for a pullback, but you can really quantify this for us. Sure. Hey, Kelly. Well, good to talk to you again. Yes, uh, as of today, we have gone 278 days since the end of the last decline of 5% or more, which was a pre-election 9.6% pullback. 
And when you go back to World War II and you look at round trips that are either between 5 and 10% or 10 and 20%, we've actually had 83 such uh, kind of round turns, if you will. So it's fairly normal to go through a decline, a resetting of the dials, et cetera. And we have now uh, established the 18th longest stretch since World War II without a decline of 5% or more. So I think one is, is due. Before I ask about, you know, as you mentioned, kind of some stocks or strategies for that downturn, why do you think it is that we haven't had one? Is it does it tell you something about the nature of this rally? Well, yes, it, the, the whole thing about this uh, bull market advance and prior bear market is record setting. We declined 34 percent back in March of 2020 in 33 calendar days, which was the swiftest on record. We then got back to break even on August 18th of 2020, fewer than five months, which was the third swiftest on record. And then because the economy has been recovering, earnings have been improving, uh, basically investors were looking across the valley and that's why we ended up with stupendous returns. And now that we are approaching second quarter earnings period, uh, expectations now top a 60% year on year growth rate for the S&P 500. Yeah, it, it has been peculiar by so many different measures. So none of the names in this list are big tech stocks, Sam. A lot of people would think those are the safest places to be, whether there's a downturn, you know, an upturn, a, whatever kind of market that you're talking about. They say these are the secular generational winners. What would you say about their valuations right now? Well, tech today is not tech of 1999. I remember back then, a lot of people were still talking tech because they said even at 60 times forward 12-month PEs uh, that tech stocks were attractive. Whereas today, we're looking at tech stocks that are in the mid to upper 20s. So I would tend to say that the S&P 500 tech sector is nothing like it was back in the 1990s. We're not looking at excessive valuations. Certainly, the S&P itself is trading at more than 30 times next 12-month earnings as compared with uh, you know 20 or so times uh, on average in the past. So we're, we're, we are expensive on the whole, but you can't really just point to one particular and say, one sector and say, this thing is going to blow up. That's so peculiar. So, you know, because a lot of folks are worried about that part of the market where they see perhaps there's most risk to rising interest rates. And obviously the performance speaks for itself. But you're saying, curiously enough, big tech or tech in general is trading at a discount to where it was kind of in the late 90s. But the market overall is more highly valued. That's strange. Well, yes, but uh, I think it's because investors continue to say, you know what, we're probably underestimating economic growth for 2021, underestimating earnings expansion for this calendar year as hmm. well. Uh, and because they expect interest rates, while there's still the talk of tapering to take place end of this year, beginning of next, as well as interest rates end of next year, beginning of 23, still interest rates are very, very low by the historical standard, which is usually 5% on the 10-year note, not 1.5% where we are today. Yeah, so fair enough. The forward multiple might actually be lower than it looks right now once those earnings come in. All right, so at long last, let's get to these 10 picks. I'll rattle them off here. You can tell me what kind of the unifying themes are. There's Ball Corp, Domino's Pizza, an interesting uh, inclusion. Extra Space Storage, Life Storage, Nextera Energy, Pinnacle West, Clorox, Procter & Gamble, and Ener Evergy. What unites these names? 
Well, there's an old saying that when the going gets tough, the tough go eating, smoking and drinking. Uh, and so you could basically say that those defensive areas and the, uh, the, the two dominant sectors in this list are uh, consumer staples and utilities. Other factors are that CFRA equity analysts have buy or strong buy recommendations on these stocks. They also have an S&P quality ranking, meaning in the past 10 years, they've had a superior track record of raising earnings and dividends. And lastly, their uh, volatility is half that of the market. So high stars, low beta are the reasons for these 10 stocks. Uh, but many of them come from utilities, consumer staples. And then, you know, we have a lot of junk. We have to store it. And so that's why those two storage companies come into play. Eating, smoking and drinking and visiting your storage <laughs> place. Uh, sounds like a fun third quarter. Sam, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Sam Stovall with CFRA. Well, the Reddit trade is starting the week pretty strong. Check out AMC, GameStop, Bed Bath Beyond, Koss, and BlackBerry. They're all moving a little bit higher today. AMC is up 7.5%. BlackBerry up almost 5%. And it's rebounding from a week session on Friday. Its shares are actually down over the past week, despite the company reporting better than expected results. Still, BlackBerry has nearly tripled off its 52-week low. It brings the company's market cap to over $7 billion right now, about 7.2, as you can see there. So are the fund Fundamentals backing up the stock's Reddit run. Joining us for today's edition of Real or Reddit is Abe Deshpande, the chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors. All right, Abe, let it rip. What do you think about BlackBerry? Oh, uh, I think it's like a lot of the meme stocks, uh, stocks right? There's a lot of uh, perspective kind of guesswork that goes into what it could be worth. Um, you know, at Centerstone, we're fundamental investors. We look at what we have here now and then kind of judge the potential in the future. Uh, and BlackBerry is no different than a lot of the meme stocks. They're, it's kind of a lottery ticket. Um, I mean, I hear that there's you know, business transformation and all this, but you know, if you go, you know, if you read the report, if you read the documents, you'll see, um, you know, management's telling you one thing and the market is hearing something totally different. Okay, wait, let's stop on this point because I've looked through some of these documents and it is a great transformation story. Obviously, this is not the handset BlackBerry, but they have successfully embedded their software in cars. And there's an argument that this could be kind of smart car technology that is going to become more and more powerful and profitable in the future. So why isn't there sort of toehold in the car a brilliant opportunity for shareholders? Well, because their toehold might be some, you know, someone else might have a stranglehold. <laughs> like Google, for instance, um, and there you have to. It's important to understand, like that's just part of the business, right? There's a other huge chunk of the business that is legacy licensed software, and you're paying a huge amount of uh, market value for the perspective, their perspective uh, success. You're almost saying you're 100% guaranteed to get that success when actually management will tell you it's an intensely competitive industry. They're all trying to create a standard for, you know, for this, uh, for in your example, the auto right. automotive uh, business, the business uh, part of the uh, chain and, it, and success is not guaranteed. And then you've got this contrasting with, yes, they have been transforming the business for three years. Uh, they make comparing, comparing results extremely difficult because every single year they change how they present the results to shareholders hmm. uh, and they tell you themselves do not rely on the past. <laughs> so we're at a point where basically it's going to be the loudest voice that wins. You know, I'm not particularly good in that kind of a debate. Uh, the fundamentals will ultimately determine where the business's stock market and the, 
and businesses value settle out. One more question. So they they have the car piece of it. I'm not sure you've successfully counter argued for me why they won't benefit. Because I know what you're saying that no one wants to be up against Google or Apple as they become the next platform. But this is pure speculation as to what those businesses will look like, whereas BlackBerry's technology is already there. So let me ask you about the cyber piece of it, because this is another big sort of case that the bulls will make. At a time when cyber's never been more important, they do have a strong business there, do they not? Cyber, you mean the security side of it. Yes. So that's that's their spark business. And, you know, once again, um, it will. it's not really consumer facing. It's more of a business to business, you know, kind of, uh, you know, segment. And there again, they could do compete with a lot of other people. It's it's very difficult to say that they have the, uh, you know, the special sauce uh, that is going to be the industry standard. You know, the car business, yes, it's true. They have, uh, I think, 150 million cars that have some of their uh, back end kind of connection to the, to the, uh, the, the OEM. Uh, but, you know, Google Android is in almost 100% of new cars being manufactured. It's just going to be a very tough. Ch- it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's not un- insurmountable. But, you know, I just kind of go back on over many, many decades, I've seen companies go through business transformations. There's a long period, like years, where you don't know if it's going to be successful or not. And right now, the market is kind of assigning essentially $6 billion of value to uh, to that to that to the to those prospects, it's sure. almost like a hundred percent chance of success. That's the only thing I'm arguing against. I'm not saying they're going to fail. It's not a fraud. You know, Prem Watsa is the chairman of the board. He's sort of like the uh, Warren Buffett, one of the Warren Buffett type characters in Canada. Yep. Um, it's really a, this is very different than like a GameStop or AMC where you know there's just it's just silly. But um, here, just kind of like, uh, your guess is good as mine. <laughs> no well, one really knows. Final point, Abe, I just kind of want to bring to light on this because you are so good going through these balance sheets. Uh, what does their profitability say to you before we go? How profitable are they? Uh, most of the profitability is for the licensing business. They, um, they're, as you would expect in a business transformation, the vast majority of their prospective business is, is, is utilizing a lot of R&D expens- expenditures. So they're kind of eking out a little bit of cash flow. Uh, not much profit as they invest in the business. And it's an open, you know, ended question as to uh, whether or not they, they they will succeed in generating value from all this R&D that they're spending. You know, the problem with software is the moment you spend that R&D, it's stale. Uh, it, nothing's a secret in this business. So it, it's kind of a race against time for them. Yeah. Um, and as I, as I mentioned, there's, you know, it, these transformations can take a lot of time. In the meantime, I'm left with the question, Okay, you've already priced in a hundred percent chance of success. Like, what else is there? Mm-hmm. Right? Fascinating, Abe. Thank you so much again for going through kind of piece by piece the arguments out there and explaining where you would come from. Uh, always a pleasure. We'll do it again next time. Thanks. Abe Deshpande from Centerstone Investors. Coming up, we'll hear from the chief investment officer of Calsters, one of the nation's biggest pension and investment funds, on everything from hedge funds to the retail trading frenzy. Plus, shares of Ford and GM are leaving EV makers in the dust this year. Should you stick with them, or is there better opportunity in one of the shiny new players on the block? We'll explore in a moment. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back, everybody. The market for electric cars is expected to more than quadruple in just the next four years. But the competition is growing by the day. Honda announcing today they'll change course and develop their own electric vehicles instead of using General Motors. And Electric Last Mile Solutions, an EV delivery startup, completed its SPAC merger today and is now listed under the ticker ELMS. But the legacy car companies like Ford, GM, and Toyota, well, they're all posting healthy stock gains this year as executives have clearly signaled their intention to go all in on the electric future. Ford is up 71%, GM's up 42%, while the EV plays themselves like Lordstown, even Tesla and Neo, they're all actually in the red since January. So is it the legacy players or some of the newer EV names that will come out on top in the long run? For more, I'm joined by Colin Langan. He's senior auto and mobility analyst at Wells Fargo. Colin, it's good to have you, especially after this run in Ford. Is that where you'd put your money to work? Yeah, Ford is still our top name. I mean, I think they outlined at their investor day a very compelling electric vehicle strategy. They also outlined a very compelling uh, big data and connectivity strategy. And they have great products coming. So the fundamentals are actually looking great. I mean, they have the Bronco coming out. They have the Mach-E. Let me ask you about the debt, uh, Colin, just want to make sure we can hear you okay. But for 15 years, the issue with Ford has been its high debt load. Is that still a concern for you? All right, we'll try again in one moment with Colin Langan here. Sorry. Colin, Sorry do, you want, yeah. do you want to try one more time? I was just going to ask you about Ford's debt levels. As I mentioned, for 15 years we've been hearing about this. Is it still a concern for the stock or no? No, I mean, I think, you know, they, they have slightly high leverage, but nothing compared to where it was in 2008, 2009. I think it's very manageable. I think they have the right plan in place. Uh, doesn't It's not a, a hot, one of the top 10 concerns for me at this point. What's Tesla's future? I mean, I think they obviously have, have they're leading right to today in electric vehicles. I think that's uh, you know sort of undoubted. If you look at sort of range per kilowatt hour, they're a leader there. I think uh, you know we're seeing the the traditional show that they they're eager and ready to play. And I think over the next few years, they're going to show that they can catch up. Uh, but Tesla clearly has you know some role in the future, particularly on the, the luxury side, in my opinion. I think they're dominating there, and that's where they're. Uh, showing that they could be profitable. Yeah, Daniel was raving about the Plaid, the driving experience over the weekend. So they are continuing to set the bar very high, even as the competition grows more intense. You like Ford, you like GM, who else? And what about this crop of new EV plays that's come to market? 
I mean, I think people aren't giving the traditional auto companies a lot of credit. I think the U.S. companies in particular are very interesting, having covered them for over a decade and a half. I mean, when I started, they were obviously in, a, in decline. Um, I think they understand better than most of the traditional auto companies the risk of being disrupted because uh, they've had been disrupted. Most of the leaders have probably been at companies that were shrinking for most of their, their history. Uh, so they've been more aggressive and it's showing, and I think they're showing some strong leadership here. So I, it's kind of an interesting time to cover the U.S. names. I think they're they're all doing doing very great. There's clearly going to be a role for some of the startups, um, but I, th- I think a lot are, are pretty high risk, quite frankly. But what's the business model going to look like as these companies make this pivot to producing EVs, especially as the competition for the metals, the materials, and all the rest of it that goes into making them is growing and pushing up those prices every month, it seems? Well, definitely. I mean, all the irony about all the EV excitement, I mean, a lot of it is excitement around government sort of support. Um, We'll probably see, I think it was already pulled out of the infrastructure bill, but there's a large view that some of the EV support will be put in legislation later this year. Um, And so we're seeing government support. But as you kind of point out, the the raw materials on the battery side are up about $3,000, or at least added costs if you look at the the raw material costs uh, for EV batteries. So that, you know, has actually been a step back. I think by the time you get to 2025, 2030, I think the expectations are we get enough of that supply online, the supply demand in gets back sort of to a norm and those prices come down. Uh, but uh, it is it is clearly in the near term a headwind for, for EV sales. Yeah, absolutely. Although, as you mentioned, the stock's more excited by the growth prospects than by the near-term profitability challenges. Final question is about Tesla and China. You know, China, as you mentioned, uh, contributed all the company's global market share last year. Now there's another recall in that market. They're trying to kind of get behind their homegrown players. What, lo- what does Tesla look like without China? Or is that question absurd because they, they simply have to have China in order to justify the stock price? Um, I mean, yeah, I think I think you need China. Uh, it's a question of how much they could grow there. I think the brand is still very, very strong there, but they... You know, it's something to constantly watch. The the headlines over there have been a bit negative for them. Uh, they've gotten some bad press. Uh, recalls, you know, never helped for any auto company. Uh, doesn't seem like investors don't seem too concerned today about it. Um, but you know, China is an extremely important market for them. It's it's the really the hub of where EVs are going to see the biggest growth. And so you want to have a strong position there because then that gives you scale for the rest of the world. Because uh, really, if you go around the world, it's going to be China, Europe, and then. The U.S. really is lagging far behind. So uh, China is a pretty important EV market for sure. Yeah. And again, to mention your Tesla price target, about $100 below where it is right now. You rate them equal weight. You've got Ford and GM overweight. Ford at 18, GM at a $67 price target. So that gives some sense of where the market is going from here. Colin, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Colin Langan from Wells Fargo. Coming up, don't expect relief on the state and local tax front, at least if you're a high earner. We'll take a look at why scrapping the so-called salt cap may be nearly impossible for Democrats on Capitol Hill. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app anytime, night or day. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com meetingdemand meeting demand. 
Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you a check on the markets. Dow was up 15 points at the highs, but we're down 240. That's just off the lows of the session. That's a seven-tenths of a percent decline. Flip side is the Nasdaq up six-tenths today. In the middle is the S&P. It's down about five points right now. We'll keep an eye on it. Here are some of the movers this hour. The cruise operators are in the red, with Carnival the biggest laggard after announcing it'll sell half a billion dollars worth of shares. Uh, it's trading down about 7%. This was on top of $2.5 billion it's raised over the past year in order to stay in business. Royal Caribbean down in sympathy. So is Norwegian down 6 to 7% right now. On the flip side, check out Etsy. It's up 5% after announcing an acquisition of a similar Brazilian company for about $217 million. Etsy's up 6.5%. The CEO says today's deal establishes a foothold in Latin America. This comes after they paid $1.5 billion earlier this month in an effort to expand in Europe. And shares are on pace for their best month since November. They're up almost 20%. Finally, let's check on energy, which has been the best performing sector this year. Today, down more than 3% with every constituent moving lower. Several names down more than 5%, as you can see there, including Occidental and Phillips 66. Well, one eatery in New York City is giving new meaning to the term restaurant worker. That's ahead on the exchange. But first, Senator Bernie Sanders' budget proposal calls for state and local tax relief. But a closer look suggests that'll be unlikely, at least for high earners. We explain after this. Welcome back. Taxpayers in states like New York, New Jersey, and California have been holding out hope for relief from high state and local taxes with the return of the SALT deduction. But while recent bills do propose some changes, they likely won't apply to high earners. Robert Frank is here with the details. Hi, Robert. Uh, Kelly, good afternoon. Senator Sanders did include $120 billion in his budget for SALT relief, but a full repeal of SALT would cost three times that. So the message here is that a partial repeal is a lot more likely. Now, what would a partial repeal look like? Discussions right now are focused on lifting the cap for those earning less than $400,000 a year, but keeping it entirely for those who earn more than $400,000 a year. Members of Congress pushing for a full repeal say the income proposal wouldn't solve the main problem of the wealthy moving out of high-tax states, in part because of SALT. It's having a huge impact. Salt, as you know, as we've talked about, Becky, on people leaving states like mine and, and the impact it's having on all earners. And as a result, when people leave, that has a big effect on schools, on uh, hiring law enforcement and firefighters because the tax base drains out when people move to Florida and Texas and the Carolinas like we're seeing in recent years. The fact is most of the benefits of repealing salt do go to the top 1%. So a full repeal looks unlikely in a party hoping to raise taxes right now on the wealthy. Kelly? So, Robert, the most likely state of affairs to come out of, the, of this is some relief for lower-income households, uh, but maybe status quo for higher earners. I don't know what that, that bar or that threshold is, but to your point, this isn't just about whether they, quote-unquote, need that tax break. It's that in a post-COVID world, their mobility is higher than ever. Exactly right. And and the party can't have it both ways. You can't say, no, this won't help the rich, but we also oppose a threshold of $400,000. I mean, the basic fact about repealing SALT is, number one, it's very expensive. It costs $80 billion a year to repeal. And two, this is a benefit, let's be honest, that really helps the 1%. And you just can't get around both those facts. Yeah. Um, Robert, by the way, what's the next step in this process? It just depends on what the, the exact fate of these bills are as they get signed. 
Exactly. It's all rolled up into this giant ball, both the reconciliation and the taxes and what happens with infrastructure and then the second bill. So this is much a small piece of that much bigger process. Yeah, and that number, as you mentioned, is so big, 120 billion or even triple to do the whole thing that it's unlikely that would go away as they're looking for pay-fors. Robert, thank you very much, our Robert right. Frank. My next guest says Democratic leaders, as we've just been discussing, can't afford not to provide state and local tax relief. And that the infrastructure deal is a political victory for President Biden, regardless of whether it actually gets signed into law. Let's welcome in Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research for Strategist Research Partners. Dan, how can it be a victory if it doesn't even happen? Yeah, well, the president got a big announcement on a bipartisan deal. He's going to storm the country for the next three weeks, starting in Wisconsin this week talking about a bipartisan infrastructure deal, but this is a very shaky agreement that was reached, Kelly. What you see is that the pay-fors may not fully pay for the deal. You also have the Democratic leadership trying to link this to a reconciliation bill. There's a real chance that this agreement actually never makes it into law. But by the time we're done having that debate, it gives Senator Manchin and Sinema enough political cover to join the reconciliation process and to put those provisions in a Democratic-only tax bill, which there's widespread agreement for. Now, some provisions may not fully be able to qualify for reconciliation that was in this bipartisan infrastructure deal, but it feels like just having that discussion is getting the president the political win he needs, even though it was pretty clumsy, the rollout over the last couple of days. So by the end of the year, what is actually signed into law in terms of infrastructure, in terms of total new spending? Yeah, Kelly, you know what? It feels like four years ago in June of the Trump administration, first year of the Trump administration, nobody thought he could get his tax reform through. We knew we had a very uh, rocky six-month period of going through the legislative process. And you remember that very well. You covered it excellent during that time. And I think we're facing a very similar situation here. There's going to be ups and downs. The process is not fully determined on the path that we are going to take on this. But ultimately, the Democrats are suggesting that they need $2 trillion of spending to stay competitive in the election, and they are going to use the tools available to get there. It's like a big Rubik's Cube right now. They're just trying to figure out how to get all those pieces to fit. That's an extraordinarily messy process. I think by the end of the year, they're probably going to get $1.5 to $2 trillion, and they're going to get tax increases. So the most important takeaway for investors is that the fiscal policy debate of the Biden agenda started last week and the Democrats are moving forward on reconciliation. And that's going to bring a lot of tax headline risk over the next couple of months. How does salt fit into all this, Dan? Absolutely crucial piece to this. Now, I just listened to your conversation with Robert on, on all the pieces to this. Think about what the president is asking moderate Democrats to do in Short Hills, New Jersey, in Orange County, California, He's asking them to vote to raise income, capital gains, dividends, estate, and corporate taxes. Those Democratic members in those targeted vulnerable districts, which are generally high-income districts, are going to need the state and local tax deduction to sterilize the impact of those tax increases. Now, there's $120 billion in the Bernie Sanders budget. That's a huge moment. Bernie Sanders has vowed not to put any money in that budget for state and local tax deduction, and then he did. And that tells you the forces of the leadership, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker from California, Senate Majority Leader from New York, and those rank and file members are going to need some salt relief. That 120 billion doesn't have to be for four years. That can be for two years. Hmm. And you get a lot more out of it for two years rather than four years. 
The legislative process will determine how that is structured, how big the deduction is going to be. But I think you're seeing an increasing realization, even from the most progressive members, that if they really do want child tax credits and free community college and paid family leave, there's going to be a cost to that to the moderate Democrats, and that's going to be state and local tax deductions. But this is so disingenuous because they're basically saying we want to raise taxes without actually raising taxes. So we're going to offset it by giving you, you know, another deduction from state and local taxes, which are themselves highest in blue states because of these same priorities they're now trying to pursue at the federal level. I mean, it makes no sense. Kelly, I, I, I agree that it, it could look that way. But what we're talking about here is about $800 billion of individual income tax increases and then $120 billion offset on state and local tax deduction. And what this is designed to do is stem the outmigration of residents from high income tax states to low tax states and using a federal government subsidy for that. But it will still be a sizable net tax increase on the wealthy if the Biden plan or some version of the Biden plan goes through, even with that SALT deduction. And so why would we do this? Look at what New York did in the month of April. They enacted a 13.3% income tax in a high mobility post-COVID world. There's just no way that the arbitrage between high and low tax states can compete with that. And so that's why Schumer is going to press very hard to get at least some state and local tax deduction relief in there. And I'll say this, Kelly, a majority of House Democrats, a majority oppose any type of salt relief, but it's probably not their vote moving issue. And they're probably not going to throw out all that progressive wish list just for this minor change in the tax. Well, and, and I think the wonkiness of it keeps people from necessarily focusing on it the way that they otherwise would if it had a, you know, a sexier name, for lack of a better term. I mean, last question yeah. on this, but don't you expect the sort of Bernie Sanders um, hardcore followers, the AOCs of the world to come out and, and call this for what it is? I mean, again, it's, it's basically the rest of taxpayers subsidizing these high cost parts of the country so that people don't flee from them to go to other parts of the country. Yeah, and, and I'm just trying to give you kind of my handicapping of how the political yeah, outcomes yeah, no, will end up and the policy outcomes. I agree completely with you, and I think there's a lot to be said uh, from the progressives who are going to be rallying against this. They're going to have to weigh their options here, and that is that if you're going to get a historic investment in infrastructure near doubling, climate spending, paid family leave, child tax credits, a five-year extension of Obamacare, do you throw all that out in exchange for not uh, in exchange for salt? I think the answer is going to be no. And the reason for this, Kelly, is that Nancy Pelosi can only lose four votes in the House of Representatives, given how tightly divided we are. And as you know, the Senate can lose zero. There's a lot of Democrats from high-tax states who are going to want some salt reinstatement in. And I think that's going to be the political reality. Yeah. Full reinstatement, probably not. But you will see some compromise and some inclusion if the Democrats want to get the larger bill. Through. No, it's a good way of putting it. I could almost see the, the stump speech happening as you were saying it there, Dan, and how this thing is going to be sold. All right. So let's finally boil it down for investors, because this does come back yep. to so many different things about inflation, interest rates, how the market's going to perform. You can even go into individual yep. sort of sectors if you want. We've, of course, been watching the classic infrastructure plays trading off of Absolutely. all of these headlines. What's your best advice here? Yeah, so I think investors over the last two months started fading the Biden agenda, started fading infrastructure, started fading tax increases. That began to reverse on Thursday. The infrastructure stocks are up 3% since Thursday. You're going to see some level of infrastructure spending get done 
regardless of whether it's bipartisan or reconciliation, they'll figure out a way to get some of that money in there. In terms of tax increases, I would start to watch the names in semiconductors, biotech, healthcare equipment, life science tools, software, and tech hardware. Those are going to be the most negatively impacted by the corporate tax rate increase. And if you look at Joe Manchin, he said over the weekend, he's for a 25% corporate tax rate, 28% capital gains tax increase. I think the Democrats may have to fail on getting their package through before they could succeed, very similar to Obamacare, but it's likely they're going to get something done and it's going to impact different sectors differently. I would stick with companies that are more domestic-based and are more likely going to receive that government money versus companies that are international-based, which are facing the brunt of those tax increases. It's fascinating. Dan, thank you very, very much. We really appreciate all your thoughts today. Dan Clifton of Strategus. Let's get to our Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Supreme Court is refusing to let New Hampshire sue Massachusetts over an income tax dispute. New Hampshire wanted to stop Massachusetts from collecting income taxes from about 80,000 of its residents who've been working from home during the pandemic instead of commuting to offices in Massachusetts. A U.S. consumer watchdog is finalizing a rule restricting mortgage foreclosures. The CFPB is establishing temporary safeguards to let borrowers seek loan modifications or sales before being foreclosed. Software mogul John McAfee committed suicide in his Spanish prison cell. That's according to a report on the official autopsy following his death. McAfee was found hanged in his cell last Wednesday. And in Canada, members of an indigenous community holding a sacred ceremony at a site of hundreds of unmarked graves. They put out 751 lights, one to mark each grave at a former school for indigenous children that were run by religious groups. And tonight on the news, several churches that sit on indigenous lands being set on fire. That's after the graves were discovered and calls for the Vatican to respond. It's a continuing story, Kelly. Really sad one. Horrible. Uh, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, watch out WeWork, the hottest new co-working spaces in New York City are restaurants. How dining establishments are courting remote workers after this. Welcome back. UBS is breaking with the likes of Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan by allowing as many as two-thirds of its employees to permanently do hybrid arrangements where they can work part of the time at home. As that trend looks more likely to stay, workers don't always want to literally be at home. And for those who want somewhere else to go, that's where New York City restaurant Kindred saw an opportunity. Offering people a third-party workspace that isn't your typical coffee shop, it looks beautiful. Look at that. Joining me to discuss is Moshe Shulman. He's a partner at Kindred. Moshe, welcome. What makes this different, your particular concept, from people kind of just bringing their laptops anywhere these days to work? Sure. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. I would say what makes us different is we're extremely accessible for $25 for the day from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. You get a really nice outdoor space to work from. We offer unlimited ice cold coffee or hot coffee. There's charging stations at every table. There's bathroom access. And really, it relieves the anxiety of knowing whether you can you know, go to the bathroom, you know, get coffee. We also offer lunch. And it's just a way for people to have a great place to go without being stuck at home. Um, and I think other competitors are the entry fee is a lot higher and there's a lot a lot more strings attached. Here's a quick question. I remember when I would often be sort of coffee shop hop, uh, hopping myself. I never wanted to leave my stuff and go use the restroom. Do you guys have a solution for that? Mm -hmm. 
We do. Yeah, thank you. That uh, We do have a hostess that's on site for the full day, so you can come and go as you please. That's another uh, reason why people like coming to our space, because once you book the table, it's yours for the full day. We won't sell it. So you can come and go, arrive, go to the restroom, leave, grab a, take a phone call and come on back and continue working and then stay for happy hour. Yeah, 25 bucks a day still, if you add that up across <laughs> how many working days in a month? 20 is, I don't know, do the math for me, uh, Moshe, how much are we talking? I mean, it, it adds up is my point. So are yeah. people paying for this? Is this oh, a, an expense that businesses you think might foot if they're basically saying to people, well, this is a privilege to be able to work from home. So if you want to go to a working space mm -hmm. like this, you have to foot the bill. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that I, I'd love to see more corporate, you know, corporations, maybe Facebook, Twitter, take this note from their workers. If they're going hybrid or fully remote, there are places where they can send their employees for a good price where they can get out of the home and still get and still be productive. Uh, for us, we're seeing an increase right now. You know, we, we, we ended the month of May with about 230 unique guests. We're going to end uh, June with over 300. So the data is there that people do want this service. And right now it's about 10% of our sales and I think it will grow. So I have a question for you because I think you guys had some success on TikTok with a viral video that really caught everybody's attention, opened their eyes to what you're offering. But for other businesses out there yes. who are wondering if TikTok can actually translate into business, what's your experience been? Uh, TikTok has been a useful tool. Uh, someone came in um, unknown to us and newest York City and she put out a great video. It got 400,000 plus views and I think that certainly helped. Um, I've used TikTok for other things like happy hour and pasta specials and that's starting to definitely, you know, kick in. Can, last question, can you keep offering these specials? It's one thing when you want to kind of make your status known, you're on the scene, you want the name recognition, maybe these are loss leaders, mm -hmm. but especially the way that, you know, labor and uh, food inputs and all that are trending these days, even just transportation and delivery. I mean, is that going to be a headwind and, and how are you profitable and how important uh, is your profit margin? It well, right now it is profitable, and the main goal is was getting people in there. This you know, we started this back in September during the height of the pandemic when things were looking pretty dire, and this allowed us to have some passive income and also have marketing towards the dinner service, and that's continuing to be the case. I think this will continue, especially if we continue to have the outdoor seating. Um, but we are ready for the winter. We're it's winterized. We're ready to go indoors if we have to and expand because right now we have a unique customer list that wants our space and wants to have that service. Yeah, it's fascinating. Moshe, thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thank you, Kelly. Moshe Shulman is a partner at Kindred. Still ahead, the head of CalSTRS sees some surprising upside to the meme stock mania. We'll talk about that next. And we want to show you shares of Boeing, the worst performer on the Dow right now. It's down 3.5% today. They're not likely to receive certification for the 777X long-range aircraft until mid to late 2023 at the earliest. That's according to a letter from an FAA official to Boeing that was obtained by CNBC. It says there were numerous technical issues that needed to be resolved. Again, Boeing shares weighing significantly on the Dow today, down 3.5%. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The Federal Reserve is set to release a much-anticipated report this summer on the creation of a digital dollar. But earlier this hour, the central bank's vice chair for supervision said he has significant doubts about the idea. Fed Governor Randy Quarles expressed skepticism about most arguments made in favor of a central bank digital currency, or CBDC. He says the potential benefits of Federal Reserve CBDC are unclear. 
Conversely, a Federal Reserve CBDC, he says, could pose significant and concrete risks. He also says there are challenges if the public could bypass traditional banks and go straight to the Fed for digital money. And the benefits that consumers get through bank competition might be diminished if the Fed stepped into the space. So an interesting point of view here. Of course, we're showing Bitcoin. Uh, speaking of digital currencies, it's up about 4% today. It's no secret that Reddit and the meme stocks have brought younger investors into the market. But according to Calster's chief investment officer, it's also spurred savings. Leslie Picker joins us with more that she explores in her new newsletter here. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly, that's right. Chris Ailman saying that the whole retail participation phenomenon actually has an entire younger generation saving for the first time ever, where historically most people waited until they were in their, say, 40s or 50s to start saving. Now, we spoke with the head of the nation's second largest pension fund for our inaugural Delivering Alpha newsletter. He said the broader public interest in the markets does have some pros and cons. They're speculating. They're investing in cryptocurrencies. Speculation by itself is not good, um, and they're going to learn some hard lessons, but they're starting to save, and that's enormous. Now, if they can figure out how to do it for the long term and get compounding of interest, they're going to really have a, be a better off as a generation. He noted that some of the speculation, particularly short squeezes, is unusual and can be disruptive to market participants like him, but he says major regulation is not warranted, and the activity will ultimately self-correct. Now, you can subscribe to our Delivering Alpha newsletter, which is distributed every other Monday at cnbc.com slash Delivering Alpha newsletter. Cal. Yeah, we're already uh, getting into that season again, Leslie. So he, I mean, anything else you can tell us from his comments? I don't want to steal too much from, you know, a lot of the rest that he said. But what jumped out to you? <laughs> this, and, and by the way, this is somebody who's in a position, we spoke about this the other day, but in order to have the best possible returns to shore up the pensions, to shore up the budgets and all the rest of it. I mean, this is a state that was very early on in divesting from tobacco, for instance. Fossil fuels could be next. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be curious how he would respond to the idea that they're leaving a lot of money on the table, possibly worsening that problem uh, by pursuing those goals. So what's interesting, uh, we didn't talk too much about this for the newsletter, but we have had conversations in the past that pertain to his participation uh, in the whole engine number one versus Exxon mm -hmm. situation. They were early supporters of engine number one in helping them try and transform the, you know, the, the carbon footprint for Exxon. And they were instrumental in that activist fight that wound up getting three of engine number one's nominees on the board. Uh, so, you know, he's of the mind that it actually does serve um, investors to have change from within as opposed to divestment as it pertains to uh, fossil fuels and, um, you know, traditional energy companies like Exxon. So it will be interesting to see if they're big participants in future ESG-related activi activism fights in the future because they were very instrumental in getting people to pay attention to mm -hmm. this fight. And maybe that's one of the reasons is they realize they can't divest from that entire, you know, there's so many stocks that they would potentially be at risk there. So if they can change with whether what happens to the returns exactly. at that point, I think is the experiment we're all going to be living through. Uh, but Leslie, thank you very, very much. Leslie Picker, again, you can subscribe <laughs> to that newsletter, Delivering Alpha, over at CNBC.com. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.